Turning first to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We'll read verses 28 through 30. And as you're turning there, I'll take the opportunity to wish you all a happy new year. I haven't seen uh, any of you since last year. So happy new year to you. May the Lord, even though this has been a bit of a rough start for many of our families, uh, may the Lord bless us with health and strength and grant us uh, his mercy and grace in this new year. Romans 8. 28, this is God's inspired and infallible word. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Genesis chapter 42, verse 35, is where we'll begin our reading this morning. Genesis 42, 35, we're taking as our text, chapter 43, verses 1 through 15. Verse 35 of chapter 42. Now it came about as they were emptying their sacks that, behold, Every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their fathers saw their bundles of money, they were dismayed. Their father Jacob said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And you would take Benjamin. All these things are against me. Then Reuben spoke to his father, saying, You may put my two sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my care, and I will return him to you. But Jacob said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he alone is left. If harm should befall him on the journey you're taking, then you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in death, uh, in sorrow rather. Now the famine was severe in the land, so it came about when they had finished eating the grain which they had brought from Egypt that their father said to them, go back, buy us a little food. Judah spoke to him, however, saying, the man, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you do not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you will not see my face unless your brother is with you. And Israel said, why did you treat me so badly by telling the man whether you still had another brother? But they said, the man questioned us particularly about our relatives, about us and, and our relatives, saying, is your father still alive? Have you another brother? So we answered his questions. Could we possibly know that he would say, bring your brother down? 
Judah said to his father, Israel, send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die. We as well as you and our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. You may hold me responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame before you forever. For if we, have not, if we had not delayed, surely by now we could have returned twice. And their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best products of the land in your bags and carry down to the man as a present a little balm and a little honey, aromatic gum and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also and arise, return to the man. And may God Almighty grant you compassion in the sight of the man so that he will release to you your other brother and Benjamin. As for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present, and they took double the money in their hand and Benjamin. Then they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Amen. Be seated, please. Let's join again in prayer to seek God's blessing upon the preaching of his word. O Lord God Almighty, we call upon your name as we look to your word and as we look to your spirit now, asking that you would be pleased to remember your promise that the spirit would lead us in the truth, that he would guide us in our understanding of your word, grant that understanding, O Lord, and grant the spirit's power both in preaching and in the hearing of your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Children, when I was a boy growing up in northeastern Kansas, we often we, uh, would visit our grandparents, spent quite a bit of time in, in the home uh, in which they lived for 70 years uh, as a married couple. My grandmother had a pressure cooker. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those. Uh, I, don't think, I don't think they're like the ones that are made today. Uh, this one had a relief valve on the top, and as the pressure built up in the, in the cooker, uh, that, that relief valve would jump on, on top of the, the pressure cooker. The meat that my grandmother prepared 
always tasted best when she made it in that pressure cooker. I didn't realize at the time that without the relief valve on the lid, that the lid would have blown right off of it as the pressure uh, built up inside. Life can be like a pressure cooker. The pressures of life and its troubling circumstances can build up and sometimes they can be overwhelming. As we reflect upon the past year, none of us escaped life's difficulties. And some of you experienced a multiplicity of trials. We know that we'll face troubles in the coming year as well because uh, the Lord Jesus has told his disciples that in this life you will have tribulation. If there's no relief valve, so to speak, in our lives, those pressures of life can be devastating. Sometimes it, it seems as though the pressures of God's providence are going to blow the lid off of our lives. But the merciful Lord gives his people a relief valve. More than one, in fact. Jacob is in the pressure cooker of troubling circumstances in the text before us. And as those pressures mount up, we get a window into the way God uses our providential circumstances, even the troubling ones, to bring about his purpose in us. The Holy Spirit invites us to see Jacob's experience as a pattern of our own. The Holy Spirit teaches us here that God uses the pressures of providence to bring about his good and holy purposes in his people and to drive them to a greater dependence upon his Son, Jesus Christ. We'll note three things in our text. In the first place, God's people often face mounting pressures of providence. God's people often face mounting pressures of providence. Secondly, God's people are prone to challenge his ways under the pressures of providence. And third, the pressures of providence always accomplish God's purpose in his people. In the first place, God's people often face mounting pressures of providence. God sometimes depletes them of their own resources. The first thing we're struck with in our text is the severity of the famine in the land. Jacob and his, and his family are in the thick of a seven-year famine. Remember, there were seven years of plenty uh, even as Pharaoh's uh, dream revealed and 
as Joseph interpreted that dream, there were going to be seven years of plenty and, and then following seven years of famine. In the first verse of our text, Moses emphasizes the severity of the condition uh, that Jacob and his sons, Israel and his sons faced. Now the famine was severe in the land. And, and do you notice the, the irony in verse 2 of our text? The famine was severe in the land, and, and Jacob says, go back, buy us a little food. These people were starving. They had nothing left to eat. The cupboards were bare. And he said, go buy us a little food. Go back reminds us uh, that those cupboards had already been depleted uh, of, of food once. Uh, he'd sent his sons to the source of provision. Egypt was the only place that they could go to buy food. Joseph was the only one who could give them what they needed to be saved from certain death. And they'd gone to him. They'd gone to Joseph. They'd returned with their sacks full of food, but now they'd gone through all of that food. And here again, uh, they're feeling the pressure of God's providence. The Lord does this to show his children that they must depend on him and not their own resources. God sometimes causes his children to face perplexing circumstances in their lives. Now, Jacob's sons stand charged as spies by the second most powerful man in Egypt, who also happens to be the only one from whom they can get food. And their brother Simeon is being held hostage there. And if that weren't perplexing enough, Jacob's sons were confronted with a bewildering state of affairs during their return trip to Egypt. Chapter 42 and verse 28, when at their lodging place, one of them opened his sack and found his money returned. Their hearts sank and they trembled, but they knew it was God's doing. The pressure mounted when they got back home and began emptying their sacks and discovered that every man's money was in the mouth of his sack, and fear struck their hearts. This development greatly perplexed Jacob and his sons, and they were all concerned about what the consequences might be when they returned. The Lord sometimes brings these kinds of circumstances upon his children to show them that they lack wisdom, and they must seek it from above. God sometimes separates his people or bereaves them of their family. Beyond the pressure of the famine and providing for his family, beyond the perplexity of the circumstances Jacob faced, he's also 
dealing with the grief of loss as well as the potentiality of further loss. He expresses his grief in chapter 42, verse 36. Joseph, his beloved son, was gone. Simeon is held hostage, and Jacob considered him as good as lost to him. His sons have made it clear that the only way that, uh, to clear up the charges and uh, to retrieve Simeon is to return with Benjamin, which puts Jacob at risk of losing his youngest and most beloved of his remaining sons. God sometimes takes from his children those they love most dearly to show them that their hope must be in him and him alone. Jacob's history is recorded for us so that we'll understand that these are the kinds of things that God's people will face in the pressure cooker of life. Many of you have faced mounting pressures of providence in this past year. You've been separated from a loved one or bereaved of them. Finances are already depleted and further fiscal demands come at that point. Everything breaks at once. A series of difficult circumstances rocks your family. You faced relational issues in your marriage, your family, in the workplace, or in courtship. You've dealt with chronic illness, a serious surgery, or a sequence of illnesses, sometimes perplexing illnesses, for which the physicians can't find any cause. You're wrestling with strong temptations. You're struggling to balance family, work, and church responsibilities. This isn't Murphy's Law, that if something can go wrong, it will. This is divine providence. Some of you are facing the overwhelming pressures of providence now in your Christian experience. And as with Jacob, these pressures are manifold. And when this happens, secondly, God's people are prone to question him. God's people are prone to challenge his ways under the pressures of providence. Now, Jacob's sons had already questioned God's ways uh, when one of them found the money in his sack. Chapter 42 and verse 28 here in Genesis. What is this that God has done to us? At least they recognized that God's hand was in this providence in their lives. Jacob himself had challenged God's way. Verse 36 of chapter 42, all these things are against me, 
Jacob said. In an outburst uh, in response to the gathering clouds of dark providences in his life. In the text before us, Jacob questions his son's actions that have led to their, uh, these providential circumstances. Why did you have to tell them this? Why did you have to tell them you had another brother? What else could we have done, Judah said? How could we have foreseen such a turn of events? Could we possibly have known that he would ask us to bring Benjamin down? The understood answer is we couldn't have. But God knew. Because this was God's holy providence in the lives of Jacob and his sons. Jacob's response is a paradigm. It's a pattern of the Christian response many times. Every one of us has challenged God in dozens, if not hundreds of ways over the course of our lifetime. We've flooded the throne of grace with why questions. Lord, why are you doing this? Why have you allowed these things to happen to me? Why did things have to turn out this way? You've complained to the Lord. I don't know how much longer I can take this. These questions or challenges aren't sinful in themselves. The Bible teaches us the appropriateness of reverently approaching God with our challenging questions. In particular, the how longs of the Psalms. Uh, for example, four times in Psalm chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, David asks this question, How long, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall my soul take counsel? Uh, rather, how, how long shall I take counsel in my soul? having sorrow in my heart all the day, how long will my enemy be exalted over me? Psalm 35, 17, how long will you look on? Rescue my soul. Psalm 79, 5, how long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Psalm 89, 46, will you hide yourself forever? Psalm 80, verse 4, God of hosts, how long will you be angry with the prayer of your people? Such questions, such prayers to God are in part the relief valve that God supplies for his people but questions concerning God's ways of providence must give way to an understanding of God's purpose in those providences. And that brings us then thirdly 
The pressures of providence always accomplish God's purpose in his people. They're sometimes designed to push us in a direction that we might otherwise have never gone. They evoked Judah's offer here in chapter 43, verse 9. Reuben had made a similar offer in the text uh, context that we read this morning. Reuben spoke to his father saying, You may put my two sons to death if I do not bring him back. Put him in my care, and I'll bring him back to you. Then Judah says, I myself uh, will be a surety for him. Verse 8, send the lad with me, and I will arise and go, that, uh, that we may live and not die. We as well as you and our little ones, I myself will be a surety for him. You may hold me responsible if I don't bring him back and set him before you. Then let me bear the blame before you forever. The uniqueness of Judah's offer is found in the fact that he offered himself as a surety for Benjamin. A surety is a pledge or a formal promise made to secure against loss, damage, or default. It's a security. A surety is one who has contracted to be responsible for another, especially one who assumes responsibility or debts. In this pledge, Judah typifies the Lord Jesus Christ. He typifies another who would uh, arise in the line of Judah and take on the burden uh, of man's sin upon himself, the line of Judah, our Lord Jesus Christ. Our salvation depends upon that suretyship. Our salvation depends upon that covenant pledge that Jesus made to serve as a substitute for our sins. These providences forced Jacob to do what he said that he would never do. You will not take my son down there. You will not take Benjamin with you down to Egypt. Until now, he had been adamant about that. But they've made known that that was the only way possible for them to clear their names as spies, to get more food. They have to take Benjamin back. Jacob said, if you do that, you'll bring my gray hair down to Sheol. You'll drive me to the grave if you take him back. But now, having been pushed into a corner, faced with the overarching pressure of providing food for his family or losing all his sons to the famine, he acquiesces. The pressures of providence 
do this to us at times. They push us to do things that we might have never done otherwise. The pressures of providence are always designed to bring us to a place of contentedness in the Lord. Jacob confesses his faith in the all-powerful God, El Shaddai, God Almighty. Verse 14 of our text, May God Almighty grant you compassion in the sight of this man so that he'll release to you your other brother. I find that quite humorous. Your other brother. What's his name? Simeon. And Benjamin, he says. As for me, if I'm bereaved of my children, then I'm bereaved. The patriarch resigns himself to God's providence here. Faith, the prayer of faith, and God's promises of mercy, his grace, his compassion. Perhaps the man will be compassionate, Jacob says. All of these are pressure release valves for God's people. That well-familiar promise of Romans 8.28 is a pressure relief valve for God's people. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. All things, nothing outside of that promise. Not even our own sin is outside of that promise. The pressures of providence are designed to help us to resign ourselves to God's purpose. And they're designed to return us to the divine provider of our sustenance with our offerings in our hands. They've gone to Joseph before. Joseph's sons, Israel's sons, have, have gone to uh, Pharaoh before, to Joseph, uh, who is a, a picture of Jesus, the fountain of every provision in the Christian life. When Pharaoh said, go to Joseph, uh, we're reminded that we must go to Jesus for all of our needs. First for our salvation, first and foremost, of course. We're indebted to God. We have no way to pay our debt. We confess that uh, this morning in our prayer of confession, that we have no way to repay the debt that we owe to God. We can't repay. It's impossible for us to repay it. But Christ has paid that on the cross at Calvary. And so we must go to Jesus. We must flee to Jesus by faith to be saved from our sins, to have this burden of sin 
the burden of our debt as sinners released from us, released from our backs. But then we must learn as God's children to return to him as those who have been redeemed by Christ, as those who have been bought with a price. We must return to Jesus again and again, bringing to him our prayers, our requests, but also bringing to him our offerings of praise and thanksgiving when he so abundantly supplies, uh, exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. And so they went back to Joseph to stand before him. This time, uh, Jacob's sons, Israel's sons, bring their gifts even as the Magi brought gifts to the baby Jesus, the newborn king, when they came to worship him. Our Our text teaches us that we must go back again and again throughout the course of our lives, bringing our offerings of worship, holding out our hands, asking him, to provide for our every need. Isn't that what Psalm 116 teaches us to do? What shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits toward me? I shall lift up the cup of of salvation and call Upon the name of the Lord, I shall pay my vows to the Lord. Oh, may it be in the presence of all his people. What's the psalmist saying here? He's asking, he's wrestling within his soul. What can I give to the Lord? What, can I, what do I have to offer to the Lord? And the answer that he comes up with is nothing. I have nothing to give to the Lord, nothing that is worthy of him, nothing to give him in return for what he's done for me. So what does he say? I will lift up the cup of salvation. I will acknowledge before the Lord that his grace has delivered me from the debt of my sin. And has given me every good gift. Every good gift that comes from heaven above. From the one in whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And I can give praise to the Lord. I can come with my offerings of praise to the Lord. Certainly that is befitting of every believer as we seek to honor the Lord. God uses the pressures of providence to bring about his good and holy purposes in his people and to drive them to a deeper dependence upon their Savior, Jesus Christ. The meat my grandmother cooked in the pressure cooker 
always turned out better than the meat that she prepared any other way. God's people always come through the pressure cooker of God's providence better conformed to the image of his only begotten son, his beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you and I must learn a number of things regarding God's providence. In the first place, we must learn to recognize with Jacob's sons that God's hand is in every event in our circumstances in this life. Second, we must remember that even if we don't know why God is doing something, God knows. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed to us and to our children that we may obey all of his word. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. The rock polished in the, by the ocean's wave doesn't know from which direction the wave uh, will come or how high the wave will be, but nevertheless, the wave always accomplishes the purpose of polishing the rough edges on that rock. Third, we must learn to say with the poet, whate'er my God ordains is right. If it's happening to me, it's because God ordained it to happen to me. Fourth, we must learn to take comfort in the truth that God knows our limits. Sometimes we think that God stretches us beyond our limits. Sometimes certainly it feels like God is stretching us beyond our limits. But God knows our limits. Certainly he knows us much better than we know ourselves. And he knows what needs to be done to remove those rough edges, uh, to remove the dross and preserve the precious metal of our faith. Paul acknowledges this with regard to our temptations in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, or 13 rather. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. But the pressure cooker of providence has another release valve here. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. We may not be able to tell what specific purpose God has in any event of our life, but it's essential to the life of faith that we remember that every event of the Christian experience has some role, has some purpose to serve in the interests of our Heavenly Father. To remind us of this and 
to help us remember that in every detail of every day of our lives, we're dealing with the loving hand of our God. From time to time, God does pull back the curtain and allow us to see, most often in retrospect, what God was doing in some circumstance or circumstances of our lives. And we can take comfort in knowing that God isn't like the Wizard of Oz, pulling levers and putting on a show all the while, not really knowing what he's doing, but hoping that it'll turn out for the best. Whate'er our God ordains is right because he knows exactly what he's doing in us. And he sovereignly brings it to pass in order to bring about his purposes in conforming us to the image of his beloved Son, our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ, and to bring him glory. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we acknowledge that you are a good God. We acknowledge you as El Shaddai, God Almighty. We humble ourselves before you now and submit ourselves to your providence. We confess, O oh God, that we do not always do this and that sometimes our questionings go beyond the scope of the pattern that you've given to us in your word, especially in the Psalms. And that we grumble against you in your providence. Forgive us, O oh God. Teach us these lessons of providence. Teach us that your hand is in all of the things of our lives, even though we don't understand them or can't understand why you would do such things. Teach us, O oh Lord, to be humble before you and to learn to look for the purposes that you are seeking to accomplish in our Christian experience. Help us, O oh God, to be content in our circumstances and desire above all else, not comfort in this life, but to be conformed to the image of Christ and to bring him glory. We ask in his name. Amen. Amen.